know, I think in these roles, we hold a lot of tension, right? Because we're ultimately part of the system. Like higher ed is also part of like, you know, a system that extends colonial, colonial legacies and like logics, you know, into the work that we do every day. So how do we like navigate our roles and how do we find like, you know, again, this idea of liberation outside of our, our roles, but for me, liberation cannot be accomplished until, like, you know, all these systems are completely, like, demolished and, you know, and these, not just the systems, not, not just the physical structures, of course, right, but the, the ideologies that foreground them. Hello, and welcome to Student Affairs Now. I'm your host, Susana Munoz. Today, I have the privilege and pleasure to speak to some student affairs practitioners who have been doing outstanding work in the field as they work with and for college students who are undocumented or are DACA recipients. DACA stands for Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals. In this episode, we'll be discussing the ways in which colleges and universities are supporting or not supporting students who are DACA recipients or undocumented. And we will discuss how the field of student affairs is faring with supporting student affairs practitioners who have DACA status. Student Affairs Now is the premier podcast and learning community for thousands of us who work in, alongside, or adjacent to the field of higher education and student affairs. We hope you'll find these conversations make a contribution to the field and are restorative to the profession. We release new episodes every week on Wednesdays. Find us at studentaffairsnow.com or on Twitter. Today's episode is sponsored by Stylus Publishing. Browse their student affairs, diversity, and professional development titles at styluspub.com. Use promo codes SANOW for a 30% off of all books plus free shipping. You can find Stylus on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, LinkedIn, and Twitter at, at StylusPub. Today's episode is also sponsored by Leadershape. Leadershape is a not-for-profit organization that has been partnering with colleges and universities and organizations in creating transformational leadership experiences since 1986. With a focus on creating a more just, caring, and thriving world, Leadershape provides both virtual and in-person leadership development opportunities for students and professionals. When you partner with Leadershape, you will receive quality development experiences that engage learners and topics of courageous dialogue, integrity, equity, resilience, and community building. To find out more about their virtual programming, please visit www.leadershape.org backslash virtual programs. You can also learn more about their organization on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. As I mentioned, I'm your co-host, Susana Munoz. My pronouns are she, her, hers, and ella. I'm an associate professor of higher education and director of the higher education leadership program at Colorado State University in Fort Collins, Colorado. Colorado State University resides on the stolen lands and ancestral home of the Ute, Arapaho, and Cheyenne people. Let's begin by meeting our panelists. Thank you for being here today. We're discuss, here to discuss how the field of student affairs is supporting or not supporting students and student affairs practitioners who are undocumented immigrants or, or DACA recipients. Please introduce yourselves and your relationship to this project. Hi everybody. Uh, thank you so much, Susana, for this invitation. I'm really excited to be here alongside you and Alonso. And um, my name is Laura, I go by she, her, and ella as my pronouns. I'm currently the director of the AB 540 and the Undocumented Student Center 
And I'm currently on Nisana land um, and grew up in Okanagan people's land in a small rural farm working community in uh, Washington state. I'm also part of a mixed immigration status family and um, have been organizing alongside my family and my community for about 13 years. Um, I come today into this space, um, you know, really open and uh, to be vulnerable and open to have a conversation on what it means to be a higher ed, uh, in higher ed currently, um, but also how to support undocumented students. Thank you, Laura. And hi, all. My name is Alonso Reina Rivarola. I use el, he, and him pronouns, and I am the assistant director for the Office of Diversity and Multicultural Affairs at Solid Community College. I am also a DACA recipient, and I've been, you know, in the United States or the land that we know today as the United States for almost 20 years. Um, November of 2021 will mark 20 years since I arrived, and my work has really revolved around being an activist, as well as an organizer, as well as, you know, a practitioner and a scholar. So I've been kind of following, you know, the development of different policies that affect undocumented communities for many years, and I also contribute to research as much as I can. Thank you. Thank you both for being here. So let's get started by getting a clear understanding of who we're talking about. Can you share a little bit with our audience um, some background about who are undocumented and DACA college students. What are some truths and facts that you need people to understand about this population? Yes, and I'm happy to start. So when it comes to undocumented students, I think first and foremost, we need to understand that we're not talking about a monolith, right? We're not talking about a community that looks the same. Undocumented immigrants come from, you know, all over the world, first of all. Um, and, you know, have been here in, on this stolen land for like multiple years, multiple generations. Um, it's not a new phenomenon in the United States. It's something that's been happening for, you know, again, from the beginning of, you know, the foundation of this country. And currently, of course, like we're talking about about 11 million people, you know, um, who are undocumented, some with deferred action for childhood arrivals, some without it many or most without it, I would say. Um, and I'll stop there for now. Yeah, thank you so much. And I think to go off of that, I also want to say that undocumented students are not their identities, like their, their identities are not the issue. It's, as Alonso was saying, right, it's the systems that they are a part of, that we are all a part of, um, both within higher education, but also the systems that we are all trying to unlearn. Um, I think also undocumented students are tired of capitalism. <laughs> They're tired of being exploited. They're uh, tired of being asked to navigate complex systems that don't serve them or their humanity. And I think undocumented students are also just tired of doing the, the higher education's job. So I just wanted to add that because undocumented students are also strategists. And I think they are definitely ready to be acknowledged as strategists and to be able to be acknowledged as community liaisons and to be um, pay for all of that labor. So I wanted to add that as well. Yeah, thank you for saying that and for naming that into the space. And I wanted to just kind of touch a little bit about like, you know, um, you know, what, um, what, ha what are you seeing in terms of how our higher education ex is exploiting undocumented students that you're, you're naming for us? And how, yeah. how do we change that too? Like, it, you know, like recognizing that behaviors are, so what do we need to do to change? Yeah, and I think something part of higher education more broadly is this constant 
um, wanting of data, constant wanting of proving something. And I think uh, when we think about, when I think about undocumented students and the, and the students that I work with, a lot of it is like, you know, bringing a panel of students so that we know exactly what the issue is when we already know what the issue is because they've been telling us what the issues are. And so that's already emotional labor that they're not being compensated for um, or that there are systems, for example, having mental health folks you know, in that conversation to be able to do, have a conversation or have a space for them to, before the, you know, a panel or after a panel or whatever that, you know, um, ask might be. Um, That's just one way, but I also know that we're, because admissions and financial aid and our processes in higher education aren't meant for undocumented students, we're asking them already to do that labor, to call that a financial aid office, to call that admissions office, um, even if they're just trying to figure out, do I want to attend this university? And then once they're attending or trying to enroll, then it, uh, then it's another whole set of other questions, right? So it's that free labor that we're constantly being uh, asking our students to do. Yes, thank you for pointing that out. And, uh, you know, Alonso, you mentioned that, you know, um, that the majority of this, of the, um, you know, immigrant communities don't have DACA. And so can you say a little bit more about sort of that, that dichotomy there? Yeah, definitely. I think that's a big issue that we often face in higher ed. Uh, we see that a lot of institutions of higher ed have shifted to talking about, well, two populations in particular within the undocumented community, right? So one being DACA recipients and the other ones, this mystical creature of dreamer, right? So, and I think that's really important to address as well. But when it comes to DACA recipients, we are talking about a very small population of the undocumented, or a very small segment of the undocumented community. We are talking about about 600,000 people, right? So it's not a lot out of the 11 million undocumented immigrants. So we have created this divide. And again, institutions of higher ed are focusing very strongly on DACA recipients as primary like beneficiaries of higher ed. Whereas we need to really take a step back and look at the entire undocumented population because if we start building programs that only target or only benefit DACA recipients, then we're already put, putting our undocumented students without DACA at risk. And again, it's not realistic to only focus on DACA recipients because one, that's a temporary program that could go away at any moment, but also two, it ignores so much more of the community in itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I see that. It's sort of like, you know, there's this this um, notion of deservingness and undeservingness in terms of who gets to benefit from certain, um, um, you know, rights and with DACA and those that can't, you know. So thank you for highlighting that. I think that's important for us to understand. Um, So when talking about sort of how uh, we address campus climate and college persistence, when they come, when undocumented students and DACA recipients come to our campuses, what are some of the most promising approaches that you see um, that universities may be doing um, about addressing our campus climates and making it a welcoming space or um, you know, college persistence and making sure they're uh, getting their degrees? So what have you seen? I know one of the things that um, I've seen is just being more proactive about uh, change in campus climate in terms of like campus culture. So I mentioned earlier that we, there's a lot of exploitation within the undocumented immigrant community and more so be, within students because, um, as I also mentioned, not everybody has work authorization. So a lot of times they're being asked to volunteer, do extracurricular activities to be able to 
you know, build up their resume or all these things that, you know, we constantly are being told that we have to prove. And I think one of the things too, when it comes to compensating labor is that I'm seeing that more institutions are being proactive about creating their um, engagement opportunities for students as an inclusive um, fellowship or internships type and model. And that it already is shifting the culture from, hey, we're going to have student workers and they have to clock in and out and have to produce this task or X, you know, thing um, to, hey, we're actually really centering the student and we're going to have professional development as part of this internship program and et cetera. And that way also it, it provides students who really want to engage, but also have to provide for their family or for themselves. And this allows them the opportunity to get that financial support, but also engage in a way that's centering them and their experience versus producing something for the institution. I love that. I love that fellowship idea. Um, and and can you say a little bit more about um, the kind of programming or resources um, that, that are specifically targeted? I know like you have like, you know, um, like a Dreamer Center or AB 540 Center in, in California because um, that was sort of mandated by California, right? Janet Napolitano uh, policy. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about sort of what other things um, does your office do to to really center undocumented and DACA recipients on your campus? Yeah, so um, I can give you the example of we work with um, seven student interns and all of them have like a one year appointment to be able to work with the center. Each of them kind of define what their role is, but we give them general an, a general umbrella. So for example, we work with a mental health student intern and they are our liaison with the mental health, with our mental health partners. Um, and they do a lot of the uh, help lead and co-create some of the programming throughout the year. And, 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 and the way that they're compensated is by quarter. So we're in a quarter system um, and they get paid more on the front end because we already know that, you know, that first quarter, that first semester, that first year is really imperative for our students to be able to be retained, but also because we ask them to join us for summer training. So we know that we are asking more of their labor. So um, that, that's just one example. But I think overall, the, we, ha we have to be very intentional to work with our financial aid office to, you, to create a process for that, to be able to say, this is a you know, request to pay stipend. This is when we want the money to go out to students, letting communicating that with students so that they know when they'll receive that funding and can also make life choices based on that. So um, that's just one a small area of the larger process, but knowing and communicating with our partners. And then also whenever we see things um, or opportunities, whether it's scholarships or, or, or um, engagement opportunities for our students, we get those forwarded to our office a lot. And so now we're getting used to um, we have a drafted message basically saying, thank you for this. Um, is this a, a stipend-based opportunity? If not, is there an opportunity to create that? And then we kind of start the conversation there too, um, so that we also start to create that list internally for future you know, students' engagement, but also we, we also get a sense of who, who's open to creating and cha changing the, the culture within their own department and, and hopefully the larger institution as we work through it. Hi. That's awesome. I really like that because engagement is such a, a um, you know, huge component of some of our universities. Um, and, and, and in a way, is a way that, that keeps students sort of connected to the institution if they find out more about what the institution has to offer as well. Alonso, tell me a little bit about your institution and what you're doing to also address um, you know, these issues as well. 
Definitely. And I love that Laura and I are here because, um, you know, she's in California and that's, you know, a very blue state. I'm in Utah, so that's a very red state. So, but nonetheless, there is support in both states. And, you know, it's kind of fun to think about the ways in which we have to like model our support for students. Um, Here in Utah, in Salt Lake Community College, we were able to open the second and documented student resource center in the state of Utah. The first one was at the University of Utah, which I had the pleasure to lead. Um, until coming here. So it was really fun to help shape both of those centers. Um, currently, Brenda Santoyo is the coordinator, the inaugural coordinator for our um, undocumented student resource center here at Salt Lake Community College. But kind of the work that we do here is definitely, um, I would like to call it an, an auditing process, right? So we'd like to audit like institutional practices through an undocumented And what would it mean to like, you know, be able to serve undocumented students or what would it mean to recreate or rethink reimagine policies to be more comprehensive of how we can open opportunities up to undocumented students right so as Laura mentioned high impact practices are something that we look at you know really intentionally especially because we know that you know the literature shows us that that's what helps retain graduate students and graduate students as you mentioned Laura. so that's also something that we try to do through like intentional programming efforts or like, you know, being able to open up new opportunities to like fellowships and paid, you know, opportunities for students that may be, that are still within, you know, the legal bounds of the institution, but that are nonetheless much more expansive than they used to be, right? And reimagining what, you know, that, what compensation looks like for undocumented students. I think it's also really important. Mm-hmm. Nice. And and so I, uh, both of you talked a little bit about sort of the resources and um, some of the programming. Can you say a little bit more about campus climate in terms of how do you, sh- you know, does, does your, is your, is your campus welcoming? Does, is there a sense of, of belonging? What do we do to also fight those microaggressions, the xenophobia? Um, I know, Alonso, you mentioned that you're in a red state and then Lauda sort of in this blue state, but does it matter? right? Does xenophobia still exist? Yeah, and I can jump, you know, back in. So for, at Salt Lake Community College specifically, I've seen that at least as far as our administration is concerned, they're super supportive of undocumented students, which is really refreshing, right? Like, do we have a lot of work to do? Of course. But nonetheless, like, you know, they're supportive. They want us to, like, you know, be able to, like, dedicate resources, like, hire people to work specifically with undocumented students, which I think is wonderful. Where, as a student affairs professional, what what I fear the most is a classroom, to be honest, because I don't know the conversations that are happening in the classroom. And I don't know how professors are responding to students or what words they're using to refer to that community. And again, like, you know, how are they processing like difficult conversations? Because I mean, as an undocumented student myself, I vividly still remember being a first year student in my undergraduate institution and being in a classroom where students started using the word illegal. And there I was, you know, sitting before DACA ever existed. I had not, I was not, you know, out. And it was the most, you know, yes, you know, we talk about racial battle fatigue for students of color like ourselves, right? But there's also like, you know, a a different phenomena that also happens for undocumented students, right? So that needs to be looked at. And again, while we do a lot of programming efforts to be much more inclusive of undocumented students and, 
open up opportunities and resources, what's happening in the classroom and how do we collaborate to respond to those incidents? Nice, thank you for pointing that out. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I, I definitely agree that with Alonso in that we definitely hear more from students when it comes to reporting incidents in the classroom or even just sharing testimonial, like, guess what? I just came from this class and they just, they had the audacity to say this, you know? Mm-hmm. And uh, so we definitely hear more about that. And, and also, and not just even language, but also just um, the awareness that, that faculty don't have around moments in time, like political moments. We had a lot of our students who were really transitioning, right? And waiting for the election results, waiting for all of these big moments in, in the past summer when we, were, uh, when we were still waiting to hear more about DACA results. And, and so the, these just bigger, larger political moments that faculty just are not, you know, being responsive to or even addressing or acknowledging in classrooms. Um, and, and with that, you know, moments when students, you know, know that for themselves, they just can't attend class that day because it's because of their mental health and they need to prioritize that. But uh, having a hard time then following up for, with faculty for extensions or even uh, being asked to, you know, relive their trauma to explain and make a point as to why they didn't make it. And so I think um, it's also that piece that we've heard a lot from our students. Um, and like you mentioned, you know, we're in California. Um, I think what I haven't noticed in terms of the difference, I, I used to work at the University of Maryland and then prior to that worked um, with other institutions um, and their students in like Connecticut and other areas. And I feel like I still hear a lot of um, similar um, experiences from our students. And I think the reason why it is because we're constantly, I, I feel like we're constantly being asked to fight. <laughs> we're constantly being asked to defend and we're constantly not allowed to rest. <laughs> so I don't yeah. think being in a blue or red matters. I think the fight's going to still be a fight. It's just a matter of the degree. Um, I know that even just this year for uh, this next legislative session for California, there's a couple of conversations around some of the funding that we have on the state you know, site level for some of the undocumented student resource centers and, and other things, right, that are connected to that, that, you know, and it's also, this year is also the 20th anniversary of AB 540, the uh, institution policy. So it's it's always this constant labor that I think um, we're coming, being pulled into. So I don't think, I think for me, it's not about, um, when I think about students, it's not about like if it's friendly or like serving or not, it's more about what we're constantly being asked to do and, and what why we can't move forward and other things that we know we can we can envision and do. Right. right. Now yeah, that's yes, that's real. Yes. Thank you for because I think it's your what you're naming too is like our, our institutions are rooted in white supremacy. And so this is what they have to this is what you know minoritized students have to navigate and once we start to undress and have a racial reckoning with you know how our institutions were founded our system isn't necessarily gonna change, right? Yeah. So the the other thing that you mentioned that I think was like, I hear a lot is faculty, right? And so even on my campus, it's, you know, it's, it's hard to get faculty to really understand it and, and get some understanding and knowledge about how, um, you know, those microaggressions occur and how to facilitate those conversations. Do you have any strategies that that you are using with with how you're training faculty or talking with faculty? Well, Laura mentioned, I think it's really important, right? And I think the key thing is like creating time and space within classrooms to address things, right? Like, for example, with the elections, that was a big moment to address, but also 
with the recipient of DACA or the day that DACA passed. Like students like, you know, or not DACA passed, but excuse me, the day that the Supreme Court, you know, upheld DACA. Um, as students were still expected to be in classes, like things just go on as if nothing were to happen. And like, we need to be much more critical and conscious and careful and, and honestly, like approach the issue with more grace and say, okay, like, let's hold some space. Can we talk about this? Can we invite people? Can we be much more understanding of, you know, what students might be experiencing that day? And, you know, it's like, yes, the syllabus is obviously important, but this is more important or you know I would argue like as important or even more important than the syllabus just because it's real it's affecting the students in real time like and you know and how can we expect the student to learn when they're like facing all these like you know insecurities or emotions you know in the classroom so I think those moments are crucial so I, I really appreciate when people like you know reach out to our dream center um but I'll foreground this with I love it when people reach out and not just reach out with the question like oh what can I do to help I hate that question (laughs) um my favorite thing is when people reach out to us with a plan or an idea and say if we were to do a 5k and raise money for scholarships for undocumented students would that help yes (laughs) like let's you know here's our logo, go for it, like, you know, let's coordinate details, let's go, you plan it, you know, we support it 100, or if I were to pay to bring in attorneys to talk about immigration policy, would that be helpful? Absolutely, like, you know, let's look at, you know, some good people to bring into campus, like, let's compensate them, you know, fairly, and let's even maybe, like, pay them to, like, host some, like, private consultations, like, with students, let's do it, but when people come and they're trying to be so benevolent and say like, oh, what can I do to help? It's like, I, I have no time for this. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, that thank you for sharing that. I, I appreciate that because I think, you know, that's sort of, um, it also, you know, gets people to own some of the work, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, by bringing those ideas that it do- doesn't just fall on your shoulders that other people have um, at stake at, in, in this work as well. So I appreciate that. Um, and so switching gears a little bit um, with, you know, we know that the Trump administration, you know, fueled the racism and racist nativism in the United States through his xenophobic and racist rhetoric. In your opinion, um, do you see the Biden-Harris administration maybe reproducing racism and racist nativism and similar to the previous administration? And so I just kind of wanted to to get to what are your opinions about um and understanding that, you know, racist nativism and racist rhetoric didn't start with the Trump administration, right? That it's always been there as part of our, our, our country. But wondering how you view this incoming administration in terms of their, their stance and, um, and ways they're, they're trying to not change or to reproduce or even, you know, if you think that the, they are changing. So just kind of wanted to get your opinions about that. Yeah, I think the first thing that comes to mind is just like, this emotional tug of war and emotional roller coaster that I think is um, continued. It's continued, and I think when I think about like Biden and Harris, they were they've both been in their office, right, and they're in their positions, not current ones, right, but previously, and um, they've both been a part of the deportation of a lot of undocumented immigrants. And so I think them having this new title isn't necessarily changing anything. I know that. Um, they have already deported a lot of Black immigrants um, in, in their, this beginning of their term. Um, and I think the other piece, too, is that 
there's a there there's a lot of um I say tug and war and, and like emotional roller coaster because there's a lot of this like we have these plans and we've you we're introducing these new ideas or not new ideas like the Dream Act, I don't know, 4.5 million, I feel like it feels like sometimes. Um yeah. right. And and it's like, oh, give us time, you know. And and so when our our students are hearing that, it's like, well, we don't have time. We we need something to happen. And so I think I when I think of um them being in their office when I when I was like also an, an undergrad and graduate student and um, they had different roles. Um, I was also like an undocumented student going through that through that journey. And I and I look at students now and the students that I work with, and I I see some of the same reactions of, you know, I'm just kind of I'm just really tired. I'm tired of I'm tired of this game. So I would say definitely um, still doing <laughs> doing the same things and repeating the same cycles, just not as um, bluntly and as as um, open about being racist as the previous administration. Mm. Yeah, for me, I would definitely like, you know, agree with that, Laura. And also, like, you know, for example, like the institution that I work for, like, sits on Eastern Shoshone and Goshut land. And for me, when I look at the issue, of course, I have to like look at it through a lens that, you know, that it's really critical of like settler colonialism, right? So, I mean, the simple fact that they are there, they will only serve to continue the legacies of settler colonialism through their offices and jobs, right? So, for me, nothing has really changed. Like, yes, like the packaging is different, but the spirit is the same, right? So yeah, to me, the the battle continues, right? And even if we move towards like legalization, which again would benefit so many of us because including though, you know, I'm not gonna lie, it would benefit me too. But nonetheless, we have to be really critical of what does that mean? What what does it mean to be included as part of a settler, a settler colonial nation, right? Like, what does that mean to be included as part of that project? Is that something that we should strive for? And materially, sure, like it would help us. But like, you know, in terms of, our integrity like is that something that we really should strive for like you know I think those questions need to be raised and are often not oh yes I love that 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 framing because I think you know we're talking about liberation right (laughs) and liberation um you know can't be really necessarily found in these you know white normative structures and so where where do we find liberation and I, I guess that's a question I want to pose to you all where, you know, where do you find your liberation? Do you feel, a, you know, in, in, this, in this fight, you know, in terms of that we're, we're engaging in these conversations, is there such thing as liberation? I think that, you know, ask me that question every day and it's going to be a little bit different, <laughs> you know, and also the time of the year. But I, th- I definitely feel like I've been able to find liberation in community. Um, and a lot of the times it has even been with our, the current student staff that I'm working with because we we are asking ourselves these questions and that's when we start to really reimagine and continue to have hope that that we may not see the liberation that we're seeking but that we're building towards it and so we know that it's not these larger construct you know constructs and systems but even within community I think for myself I'm finding that liberation and then also just letting go and um, really focusing on the the ways that I perpetuate colonialism the ways that I perpetuate all of these systems has been very hard work and very hard work you know um, Mm. a lot of like vulnerability has to happen and a lot of like accountability for myself and I think that for myself individually has also been um, 
it's, it's been my pathway to liberation. I don't want to exit this life and, and like being uh, um, also a colonizer. Mm. Yes, yes. Did, Absolutely. Did you sure, yeah. I mean, yeah. And that's the thing. Like, you know, I think in these roles, we hold a lot of tension, right? Because we're ultimately part of the system. Like higher ed is also part of like, you know, a system that extends colonial, like, colonial legacies and like logics, you know, into the work that we do every day. So how do we like navigate our roles and how do we find, like, you know, again, this idea of liberation outside of our, our roles? But for me, liberation cannot be accomplished until, like, you know, all these systems are completely, like, demolished. And, you know, and these, not just the systems, not not just the physical structures, of course, right, but the, the ideologies that foreground them. So for me, where I find maybe not liberation per se, but, like, peace mm-hmm. um, is... Definitely, like Laura mentioned, with community, but also for me, it's like intentionally moving myself away from this these imaginaries that are you know that center whiteness, right? So or that center like you know European thought. I'm, I purposefully pull myself out of those imaginaries and I like insert myself into others um, with my community, my people, my friends, like you know, and that not necessarily center those logics to kind of like not ignore them because they're still there, but to not center them. Um, and I think that's really important for me and, and and the work that we do, especially to like, again, keep some form of sanity. But again, the tensions that we hold within ourselves and trying to like navigate these, like these systems that were not built for us, not made for us and, and not intended for us to ever succeed or like, you know, liberate ourselves, honestly, right? Because like all of these systems is to, to keep us oppressed at some level, whether to be a product of, you know, like a worker in within a, uh, a capitalistic system or whether it is to, you know, continue to perpetuate like this colonial logics through like, you know, our different roles in like policy and like, you know, and government or like even in the workforce. And, you know, I think that we have to find ways in which we resist that on the daily, but... I also fear resistance because to some extent resistance also centers whiteness, right? Because mm-hmm. you're purposefully like centering whiteness to like fight it. And it's exhausting, like Lada mentioned. Uh, like the yeah. work that yeah, the work that we do in centering that every day and fighting it and resisting is exhausting. It's so important, but so yeah. exhausting. So yeah. Yeah. Oh, thank you for yes. Yes. Okay. Yes. Yeah. I love the way you did that. Because yeah. I think you're right. You know, we are centering the resistance with what we're trying to fight, which is white supremacy and whiteness. And it, yeah, I didn't, I, you know, thank you for framing it that way. Cause I really never thought about it in that, in that, in that fashion. So thank you for that. Yeah, I recently took off Alonso what you were sharing. I recently saw on social media because you know all the great things sometimes are on social media. <laughs> There's horrible <laughs> things too, um, but something along the lines of like our ancestors didn't dream us to be surviving. Like they did, they actually they didn't want us to have to keep fighting. And and I really thought about students in terms of like when I hear the the framing of like oh no I I have to do this like I I need to graduate I need to you know pay forward the sacrifices of my family by continuing to um, and so when I repeat back to students, then that means that we are, you know, we are, and like you as a student or as a person, then that means we're centering productivity, we're centering capitalism, we're centering these things. And and so that really made me think about like um, that, that quote that I saw on social media, but also what you were saying alone, so that we, that yeah, we have to constantly push back on like this mentality that, and socialization of all these systems. Mm. I love that. Thank you for both for, for those insights. 
And um, so switching a little bit in terms of our, our field, um, Laura, I know you and Diana were um, part of establishing the Undocumented Immigrant and Allies Knowledge Community at NASPA. Um, and so what are the ways in which the field of higher education and student affairs has changed or not changed to, in order to support the practitioners um, who are DACA or undocumented? It's been five years, right? Yeah. 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 Oh my gosh, we're almost a preteen. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, wow. Yeah. I, I, I think um, we're still not supporting practitioners with funding. Um, we're still expecting them to do their job in five other roles of community liaison, of experts and you know, national policy and all of these things um, and being underpaid. Um, just the example of, um, I know Diana um, and Jesus Cisneros joining on some research, right, uh, alongside California and other states around their coordinator roles. And a lot of the pieces there were that, you know, what at least what I took away what, that was really important was that everybody was doing direct, director level or above work and we're getting paid for coordinator mm-hmm. positions, right? And, yep. and, and even as a person currently now in a director role, I still feel like I'm getting underpaid. <laughs> mm-hmm. And... Um, and so I think it's we're definitely expecting all of these miracles to happen without funding um, is to, to still happen in silos. I think about like all of the um, centers that have been created to support uh, POC students um, or POC staff and right and then whenever something happens within diversity, equity, inclusion or, or that identity, particular identity, then all of a sudden we turn to that center. So in this case, we're turning to DACA coordinators or like undocumented student center directors. And and it's our job, meaning the one staff that you have to fix everything um, uh, for the institution, but also to communicate it to everyone, including your students. So I think it's, I'm still seeing a lot of like lack of funding, but lack of support um, uh, like capacity, like really just capacity, people, people power to be able to do the, the work. But also I think going back to like the systems where we're constantly having to just um, explain that this is the work that has to happen. Um, and so because we have to spend so much energy on that, we can actually enact some of the strategies that we already know work. Yeah. I love that. Thank you so much, Laura. And that makes me think of like, you know, also like the inequality within like the work itself when it comes to like, you know, the number of people who work at these centers, right? Like, for example, many of them are one person centers, literally, right? Like you are the marketing director, the actual director of the center, the budget specialist, you know, the crisis specialist, everything, right? And you get pulled into all these meetings because everything undocumented suddenly falls into you, right? And that is not okay. But also having a center gives us so much more visibility, which is great and also taxing because then, you know, I think it then demands so much more labor on our end because as Lada mentioned, like, you know, then we are expected to like do the work of like, you know, director director level positions that are underpaid or, you know, multiple director level positions that are also underpaid. Um, but then I also fear for the folks who don't have centers and are picking up on that responsibility outside of their roles and not outside because I mean it should be part of everyone's roles right like working with undocumented students should be everyone's responsibility in theory but 
we know that someone on campus will naturally, not naturally, but forcefully, I guess, feel the need to pick up on that particular responsibility on behalf of the population that they care so much about, right? So, um, and also alongside that, yes, many of those are student affairs professionals, but I want to give the biggest shout out to, you know, our custodial staff, like people in food services, who so many times become those professionals for undocumented students. Mm-hmm. I mean, I cannot give enough thank yous to the people who worked at the cafes, like, you know, at my university, the people who were custodial staff, who I would go to and could actually have a conversation with about my status or about being undocumented mm-hmm. or about being an immigrant or what it meant to like work so hard or how to support their children in going to college. And, you know, and there was mm-hmm. always perks like here, un cafecito, like here, grab a coffee, like mm-hmm. it's on me. And, you know, it's lo- like those little moments that honestly, like those are also my student first professionals. Those are the people that I looked up to. Those are the people that helped me get through. Right. So I think it's really important to also consider, you know, the role of fellow immigrants, whether undocumented or not, who become these undocumented pros, you know, mm-hmm. like by virtue of the work that they do, but who they are. And honestly, because the institution is failing undocumented students as a whole. Yeah. yeah. What, you're, what you're bringing up for me, Alonso, is just like community care, right? Um, mm-hmm. And I think a lot about that, too, because in my previous role at the University of Maryland, those were the folks that gave me all the community, including campus, like, tea, like the cheese, like the download. This is what this means. This is how you navigate these spaces. This person has been in this office for this long. And then, you know, when it, when we, we were like, I was like, wait, what? And so I just learned so much um, campus context and history that isn't seen as context and history. Um, they were part of my onboarding team too. And that was not their job, but we understood that that was part of like us both navigating the campus and the institution. So yeah, I love that. I love that, you know, our, our service workers and those um, that are often invisibilized by our institutions are also the creators of our own retention packages, our own, you know, our, our knowledge creators and so for our students as well. So I appreciate you bringing to the space that I remember even like going to an institution once and, um, and even looking at their um, resource center for undocumented students. And it was also, it was literally, um, it looked like a broom closet, right? Mm-hmm. And so it's also sort of the cosmetic and sort of these, you know, you know, the office space, right? And where the office is located and, you know, and what, what you know, it could only like two people could not be in that space. <laughs> and so it's like, how do you meet with students here? And so it's also mm-hmm. communicating you know, messages, you know, to students about their worth, about their value, right? So I'm hoping that your offices are a little bigger than what I saw before. (laughs) Um, So what about your, how you were prepared um, in graduate school? Uh, I'm curious, um, you know, what were some of your successes and limitations and harm, you know, of how your, your master's programs, um, prepared you to work with and for undocumented students and DACA college students. You know, that's interesting to me as a director of a higher ed leadership program. I'm always curious about sort of how you were prepared to do this work or how, 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 how your colleagues were prepared in your cohort to do some of this work. And then you're laughing. So I'm, yeah. I'm, <laughs> I'm guessing, like, yeah. Oh, I, 
<laughs> I laugh because I um, I was going through my graduate program as I'm like an undocumented student prior to DACA, right? And and I was like the quote unquote person that was tokenized to figure out things for the institution at the time. Um, so I was trying to navigate that and trying to navigate my graduate program. Um, and, and I think the other, the, the ways that I wasn't prepared is, is just, there was so much focus on student development theory and none of it, you know, centers, we already know, um, BIPOC community members. And I think the biggest thing that I remember from my program too, was just this constant, like, you know, um, framing and like pushing to like work with partners and campus partners, which I I understand, but it wasn't a framing in a way that was like, if you have, your student has a question around um, safety, campus police, if your student has a question about this, you know, like it was very um, not fluid and not very systems informed. Like it was, it's like, I, I know that I'm, I'm not going to call campus police police if, I, if a student has a question about safety because I understand enforcement and the relationship with immigrants. And, and so I think it was very um, harming in those ways because I know that I was one of a handful of um, women of color in the program and just in general people of color in the program. So I know that all of my white colleagues are out there and I've already seen <laughs> some of them, right? Like through different venues that have reciprocated and has, have caused harm to their students and, and have actually reached out to me to say, hey, this happened, I wanna make this better. And, and so then it's, it's kind of, it's, I, I, we know that it's not working. <laughs> we know that you know, programs are not working when we're being called um, now as colleagues back to say, hey, I did this harm, can you help me fix it? And then I think we go back to the cycle of unpaid labor <laughs> that the institution mm. in this case was supposed to was supposed to do. Yes, thank you, yeah. Absolutely, I completely agree, Laura. And also for me, same, like, you know, in my graduate program, at least in my master's, like, I don't think we were ever given, like, you know, even one reading on undocumented students. And even that one reading would have not have been enough, right? Again, there's mm -hmm. so much complexity that we cannot dismiss it and just, again, just say, oh, here's one reading on undocumented students, go. We didn't have that. And of course, like all my papers were about undocumented immigrants, well knowing that my research I, that I wanted to do for my master's program was on undocumented students. Um, but like you mentioned, like no theories that, you know, were relevant to like that particular experience or like not practical recommendations in terms of how to support undocumented students going through like distress, right? So um, that was not hard because it was expected, right? Like, I mean, sadly, like my, my expectation of the program itself, like I knew I was not going to be offered that. So, and that's not okay, right? Like it's not okay yeah. to have that level of expectation for a program to be like, I'm entering this program while knowing that it's not going to address my needs, my population of interest or the research of interest that I have in mind. And just to add another fun and I say that very lightly another sad story um I started a graduate uh, a PhD program in my former institution also while I was working as the inaugural director for the undocumented student resource center that we had and the most awkward thing happened right so I applied for graduate admissions I got into the program and um and after I had my interview and I told him that I was undocumented, I walked by back to my office at the Dream Center and they called me 
from that department and they said oh hi like you know we're from the sociology department we have a student who we just admitted into our graduate program can you tell me like you know what what we can do for undocumented students oh. and I was just like <laughs> oh my god I was like awkward yeah oh. so it was uh-huh yeah oh so, my god so I mean, cringy I know I wish I would have been like oh give them full funding um but I know <laughs> that's, uh, that's <laughs> <laughs> no but I was you know I was I, I had to tell him like oh you know this is what our in-state tuition policy looks like I was like mm-hmm. I was and I was asking questions like do you know if the student attended Utah high school like you know and they couldn't answer those questions and I knew it was me obviously but I was just like oh this is so awkward <laughs> like yeah oh my gosh Alonso oh mm-hmm. that's so cringy I'm so sorry that that happened and I <laughs> we just um I mean and we need to do better. We just need to do better. Yes, people in student affairs, practitioner programs, we just need to do better. Um, but I appreciate you all sharing that. And as, as we, um, you know, wrap up and, you know, this, as you know, this, this podcast is called Student Affairs Now. So, so take a minute to just summarize what, what are you pondering, questioning, excited about, troubling now? What, what, where are you at now? Before I answer that, I just want to add to the previous question in terms oh, of sure. master's programs. Um, I think that one of the things that I'm seeing is that more folks are interested in working with undocumented students, one, because they themselves identify as undocumented, and two, because there's obviously this need, right? And, and I think one of the things that I'm noticing, too, is that um, programs aren't preparing folks to do salary negotiation because this is a new, quote unquote, new, right, area in higher education. And I say air quotes, right, share air quotes, because it's not new. We've been doing this work for a long time. It just hasn't been as institutionalized, even though we still have a lot of work to do. So um, so it's been really hard to negotiate salaries because there, there isn't things to compare it to or, or things that are kind of comparable are not, are still, you know, as we've mentioned, are still being underpaid positions that are still being underpaid overworked. So I think that's something that um, I think is also harmful when we're thinking about folks that are going to be working with students, um, but also just acknowledging that that's going to be a fight, uh, something they'll have to do for self-advocacy. And what I'm pondering, I think just um, I'm I'm really looking forward to kind of exploring um, intergroup dialogue with their students in a way that also incorporates some of the um, history, you know, of the of the U.S., the history of the institution, um, their own history and, and connection to their to their to their family or community, and incorporate more of that wellness aspect, like that that mental health aspect and that liberation. I think that we've we've all kind of been talking about that we we know exists, um, but that um, that that continues to kind of bring leave that hope hopefulness with us, but. Um, I really, I'm, I'm really looking to kind of start to create more of that work um, in a way that's centering students and not, not leaving folks feeling like, wow, we've gone through a lot of shit <laughs> and our systems, you know, are not, you know, are they are what they are because that's how they were created. Like I want us to feel um, hopeful when we learn about these systems. And, and so that it means a lot of like proactiveness and building and, and community awareness. So that's what I'm kind of moving with right now. I echo that as well. And for me, I would add um, a couple things. One, like I want student affairs professionals to push back against the dreamer narrative. I think 
like uh, locally we have called our centers our undocumented student research centers dream centers because it's more much more like palatable for people who are like maybe like anti-immigrant right and it's like oh dreamers are cute but undocumented is not right so i want to really push back against that because it also helps like separate or creates this like you know dichotomy of the good about immigrant and like you know really like helps like perpetuate it and i'm not okay with that you know at some point i really bought into it like now i'm like no no thank you that's not that's not the route that we should be going um second as i mentioned like you know we need to pay undocumented immigrants whether students professionals whoever for their physical emotional intellectual labor i think especially the last you know not especially the last two points though are often dismissed like you know their intellectual intellectual and emotional labor again if we ask students to join a panel let's give them a gift card you know if we ask professional staff to join a panel let's give them a gift card too like that's totally we need to compensate their knowledge their labor their experience and finally for more scholar practitioners and scholars as well i would say that people need to engage read cite undocumented immigrant work Right. Mm -hmm. And hold it as central to their theoretical frameworks that they use, hold it central to like the foundations of the work that they do. Like they need to be like literally like the nucleus of their literature reviews, right? Because oftentimes their like undocumented knowledge is seen as additional or extra. And we often keep citing, you know, US citizens in this research. And we need to stop that. We need to like push away from that. We need to really center undocumented you know, intellectuals, voices, narratives into the research that we're perpetuating that we're creating about this population. Yes, thank you for thank you for that, and thank you mm -hmm. for those final words. I think those are really important. Something for me to keep in mind as well, and for my colleagues to keep in mind. So, um, my heart is happy. Thank you for all your contributions for this episode, um, and and for helping us just to to understand the critical issues um, and the, thing, the, the topics that are facing um, undocumented students in higher education and beyond. So listeners, you can receive reminders about this and other episodes by subscribing to the uh, Student Affairs Now newsletter or browser archives at studentaffairsnow.com. Thanks to our sponsors today, Leadership and Stylus. Please subscribe to the podcast, invite others to subscribe, share on social media, or leave a five-star review. It really helps the conversation like this reach more people and build a community so we can continue to make this free to you. Again, my name is Susana Munoz. Thanks for our fabulous guest today. And thank you everyone who is watching and listening and make it a great week. Bye.